You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hello, it's Thursday, August the 26th, 2021. I'm Bill Banks, Chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're all in a state of shock and deep mourning today as we learn about the horrific terrorist attacks at the Kabul Afghanistan airport earlier today. We join with others today in our deepest condolences for the members of the services that were killed and injured today, as their families as well, and all other civilian casualties in this horrific attack. We plan to return to the Afghanistan topics for further discussion in the podcast, but for today, we're going to move on to share a women in cybersecurity discussion that had been previously recorded. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this panel on the changing landscape in private sector cybersecurity. I'm Jen O'Connor, and I'm the chair of Women in National Security Law. The topic of our panel today could not be more timely. The solar winds breach discovered months ago, but that continues to have new revelations of its extent and impact every couple of weeks, it seems, to the ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline that led Colonial to shut down the pipeline, to the numerous other ransomware attacks that have continued week after week. One thing is clear, the landscape of cybersecurity and the work for the legal community that work on these issues is evolving rapidly and presenting new and different challenges every week. There are serious and even frightening stakes at play for companies, not just financially or from the prospect of additional regulatory requirements, but also because of the havoc that can be caused when their services are all of a sudden unavailable or compromised in ways that could be dangerous to the public. There's a lot to talk about. We have a terrific panel today to discuss these issues, and I want to welcome them and thank them in advance for participating in this discussion with us. Maureen, over to you. Thanks, Jen. Since this is an event for women in cyber and national security law, I thought I'd just start before we turn to the many cyber issues of the day to talk a little bit about how each of you started working cyber issues and just get a sense of the different paths. I think I'm going to start with Hillary because Hillary and I met a long time ago uh, working some cyber issues. We won't say how many years. That's right. (laughs) My venture or foray into cybersecurity began many, many years ago, back in the olden days, back in the mid-90s. And back then, I worked for what was called the National Imagery and Mapping Agency, which was the precursor to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And as part of that work, I was responsible for government contracts, export compliance, all sorts of data protection issues, as well as a variety of types of outer space law. And because the agency's mission, um, per its charter, was to field systems of common concern to ensure that geospatial data and information got out to the warfighter and other important orders of our national security, we naturally were all thrown as lawyers into headfirst, into what we call the protection of sensitive IT systems. So we had to protect this unclassified but sensitive information. And so very early on, we began on that forum. We had to think of rule sets and how we were going to do this through working with our government contractor partners. And I eventually uh, left the Department of Defense in the mid-2000s. And shortly thereafter, I found that CACI was one of the early um, participants in what became the Department of Defense 
industrial-based information sharing program. And Maureen and I, I think, found ourselves to be, I'm going to say, the only two female lawyers in the room. And so we were both outspoken and instantly bonded. So even though as Deputy General Counsel at SAIC and CACI, I got very involved in cybersecurity along with my other duties. As General Counsel, I have found that while I look at it more from a different perspective, so to speak, and my responsibilities are broader, I still keep my fingers in it. And now I can see from my perspective, the way it sort of threads its way through virtually every area of practice. Thanks, Hillary. Kemba, what about you? I mean, how did you find yourself kind of all of a sudden uh, working cyber? Was it something you intended to do or did you find your way to it just as your career evolved? So I will give you the long-ish story since we have law students, I think, present. No, it was not my intent to be a cyber lawyer. When I, when I started in law school, there was no such thing. I used to work overseas, working for a nonprofit, interested in development. So I went to law school to shift from micro development work to macro development work. When I got to law school, I discovered that I was pretty good at writing. So I ended up as an appellate law clerk from an appellate clerkship to I went to a a white shoe law firm, did appellate litigation, I think in tax somewhere. It felt really far away from what I intended to do. Uh, So I decided to apply for a position at the Department of Commerce. They were looking for people to join the trade remedies group. Realized I really did not like trade remedies and was recruited out of there to do trade remedies work, uh, but also export control work at another white shoe law firm. Really enjoyed that. I ended up in the mid 2000s, then moving on to the Department of Homeland Security to exercise my policy background a bit uh, and took over what was known at the time as Team Telecom. I ran Team Telecom on behalf of the Department of Homeland Security. It's an ad hoc group um, at the time of agencies, DOD, Department of Justice, and DHS that would provide input into the FCC's licensing process when it involved foreign investment. I went from there to being the department's primary legal counsel on CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. From there, I was recruited to go and work at what was known at the time as NPPD within, within DHS as a cyber attorney, which is now known as the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. During a five-week furlough at, uh, at DHS, Microsoft gave me a call and asked me if I would like to consider being the counsel to the Defending Democracy Group. But that's how I ended up here. So now I, since November, since the 2020 elections were secure, I've been launching and leading our counter ransomware program here at Microsoft. Kim, do you want to go next? Happy to. And Maureen, thank you for the opportunity to present among these amazing women today. Um, I was passionate in law school about two topics, corporate governance and banking regulatory work. So after I graduated, I actually got an opportunity to go to Germany on a fellowship and decided to pursue an LLM um, on German corporate governance in in German and learn about their corporate governance system and takeovers and wrote my master's thesis on that and then started working at a German bank at just a short stint to understand a little bit about the German legal culture on those two topics. And then I returned back to the United States and started in a white shoe firm working with a German banking partner. And my first assignment, actually, I remember we went out to lunch literally in the first week when I started to practice law. And he was scribbling on the back of a napkin about digital signatures. 
and that we had been engaged by several big banks to help uh, develop a technology, a secure infrastructure for the banks to coordinate and work on a secure electronic commerce. And from digital signatures, the topic evolved into establishing a PKI infrastructure. Well, I fell in love. I'd never been exposed to technology in anything I'd done in my entire life. And I just fell in love with encryption and learning and reading about encryption and technology. And I joined the ABA's Information Security Committee over 20 years ago. And eventually, after a couple of years, went out on my own to do information security consulting. I got a CISSP and uh, remember being one of the first attorneys where everyone was looking around like, why are you here? But we're happy you're here because we have to learn about legal issues. And, um, you know, sort of bridging those two areas was really just something we started to, to you know, the, the two communities started to come to, together in that just about 20 or so years ago. So then after a couple of years out and about talking about these issues, I was at the Sands Institute presenting and the Department of Justice approached me and said it was right after 9-11 that they had a newly formed cybercrime unit and would I be interested in you know, coming over and joining the group and spent eight years prosecuting hackers. It was just the, the best years of my life, starting with sort of the first fissure we ever saw, literally um, back in 2001, 2002, and all the way to some of the most sophisticated Eastern European criminals that are still around today, unfortunately, that were involved in a lot of the big payment card breaches. But my heart and soul was in investigating, not necessarily in the being in court, and so after we did get one of the criminals a 20-year sentence, PwC approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in moving over in a non-legal role, leading their cyber forensic unit. So that was for a couple of years. And then on a whim, you know, I, I met some attorneys at Alston and they said, you know, we'll give you a chance. Come on over and see if you can build out a cybersecurity practice. And that was just about nine years ago. So it's been a long journey, but I have consistently stayed in this area and love it. Thanks, Kim. Another fascinating uh, journey. Uh, Mika, why don't we just turn to you a little bit? How did you start working cyber? Yeah, so I think it's a little different from other folks because while I have a legal background, I'm not a lawyer. I don't practice in that sense, but I got into cyber. It's a little bit of a fluke. I started first working on Capitol Hill where I was very interested in working for Congress. I worked for Pat Schroeder, who was a member of Congress from Denver, Colorado. And when I started in her office, they said that the low man on the totem pole gets the issues that nobody else wants to work. So I wound up working her armed services portfolio. I actually loved working on the military issues because the military is a microcosm of society. And I went to the armed services committee, worked there for a while, and then you know tried to get back on the legal path and went to law school, um, discovered that I didn't really like practice and returned to Washington to work for Senator Kennedy as his defense policy advisor at a time when the cybersecurity issues were just starting to get um, traction on the Hill. And we were starting you know with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and some of these things to think about, like, how do we as a nation get serious about cyber? I left to go to the Intelligence Committee, where I wound up working the cybersecurity portfolio. I went to a think tank for about 10 years. And while the think tank spent most recently the past three or four years working on cyber enforcement. Um, and then when um, President Biden was elected, I was asked to join the Defense Department, which has actually been really interesting because it sort of brings me full circle in cyber to thinking about things from the military perspective and what is the military's role in defending the nation against cyber attacks. Well, great. I'm going to shift here a little bit because there's a lot going on 
Kim, I thought I would ask you, I can't even imagine what it's like from a private practitioner's perspective these days and, and how many phone calls you must be getting from people who are at the beginning of the crisis or realizing they have a problem. So I wanted to get a little bit of a sense to what do you see as the most significant threats out there and, and how private companies are reacting to that overall in different industries, and not only to the threats, but also to the resulting changes or evolving regulatory landscape? Sure. Well, I think um, I'll focus most of my response on ransomware. It is certainly the topic of the day. I spend at least every day talking to a different company, often to their senior executives or to the board on ransomware, what it means, what the threat really is. I think it really caught us a little bit by surprise because it evolved so quickly. It used to be sort of an automated attack where criminals would sort of just push stuff out and it would get hit one system in your network, a PC or something, and try to move to network shares and encrypt other systems. And then it rapidly changed in 2019. And that's the problem with cyber risk, right? Is I feel, you know, it's so unpredictable and we have to be so nimble and able to respond quickly. But it, you know, it changed really rapidly where it became more targeted. Like the criminals were looking at certain companies and targeting that company to penetrate the company's network and then deploy the ransomware. And that started 2018 or 19. And then 2019, another big shift where one entity, one of these ransomware groups said, well, let's not just get in the system and deploy the ransomware and freeze systems and then ransom them for a decryptor tool. Let's see if we can find some data. Let's turn it into a mega data breach plus an operational impact. And that's a deadly combination, right? We're sort of used to the years and years of payment card breaches where criminals get in and steal 100 million credit card numbers and massive exposure for the company in response and litigation regulatory response. But now we have that happening where data can be stolen plus ransomware, which, which we saw from Colonial Pipeline, can have an immediate operational impact depending on the extent of the systems that were ultimately encrypted. So that combination sort of sneaking up on us and then turning into the more of the rule in a ransomware incident than the exception has really been challenging for companies. And it's been very prevalent because it's not just one group. There's about 10 to 15 well-known groups out there that are having the similar type of penetration into systems getting data and lots of data, and then having the capability to leak it. So it's a double extortion. So companies are really now focused and have been for some time, but it's, it's more you know, visible to them, especially at the board of directors level. So I feel that you know, boards, you know, what's on one board's you know, radar often becomes on other boards and now it's just moved across. And we have boards of directors asking senior executives, are we prepared for ransomware? We have senior executives turning to general counsels and to chief information security officers, are we prepared? And of course, if they haven't been through it, it's hard for them to know really what it means. So then they're turning to outside experts, including you know, lawyers and information security consultants. And we're having those really in detail conversations of this is what it means. Because unless a company really understands you know, what, what we're talking about, like what the actual incident is, how they get into your systems, how they move through, how they escalate privileges, what data sets they're looking to, you know, get access to and exfiltrate, and then how they, you know, deploy the ransomware, it's hard to know how to be prepared. We have about every week, tw two calls from very big companies that have been subject to a ransomware attack. 
And encouragingly, we are seeing many of those now where they have the tools in place to, to stop the ransomware from being deployed. But unfortunately, right now, the criminals are still getting in and stealing data before that happens. So I, I think we're in a good place in terms of, of you know, being, being more informed, having the more informed discussion. It's on everyone's mind, given what we have seen happen in 2021 and how to be pre more prepared, how to work through those issues. And I think that's really encouraging, especially what we've seen the government, you know, help push out information. Thanks, Kim. And Kemba, that probably a little bit has to do with a bit of your job. Microsoft, number one, is one of the biggest companies in the in the country and, and obviously has its own internal, you know, it's also one of the big software providers that's out there. I um, wanted to talk a little bit about your job, give us a little sense of what you're doing these days and how that's probably different than what maybe someone of, of the predecessors did in the company. Sure. So we have uh, several areas where we practice cyber. So we have cybercrime which is where I'm focused right now. Uh, we have network defense and cybersecurity, which involves things like supply chain security. We have data security, data privacy, which is sort of a close cousin that's important to cybersecurity. Uh, and then we have incident response groups, right? Those that respond after a cyber attack. We also have a whole host of software engineers that are constantly writing signatures and helping to defend networks. So I sit within Microsoft in an area called customer security and trust. And in, in that space, we deal with both cybercrime and cybersecurity operationally and, and from a policy perspective. And we're a group of lawyers, of engineers, of business experts, of investigators globally that address some of these issues. We believe that customers deserve products and services that they can trust. Um, and one reason that they can trust some of our products and services, just one, is because we go in and proactively find cyber criminals and nation state actors, root them out and make it painful, make it so that they're not interested in using our products and services to commit crime or committing crime against our customers, right? But it also has a ripple effect, right? If we're protecting our services and products and our customers, um, ultimately, our goal is to protect the whole eco ecosystem. To do that requires a lot of partnership, right? So Microsoft has a lot of signals, a lot of technology, but we don't have the same authorities that the government has. So we are required to partner. And, uh, you know, we have information technology and we, we work with OT partners. We work with other partners in this ransomware space, as Kim uh, so aptly laid out. We work with cyber insurance companies. We work with web-based email providers, for example. In this ransomware space, we might work with cryptocurrency exchanges and et cetera. So, and, and, and blockchain technologists and antivirus products. But the Digital Crimes Unit handles cyber crime on an, in a number of areas. Ransomware is the newest, and that's the one that I've launched and that I lead. Business email compromise is another. Our malware group focuses on botnet takedowns. If you've heard of TrickBot, we were instrumental in, in bringing that down. Um, we have tech support fraud so that our customers that experience tech support fraud, we are able to uh, bring those persons behind those to justice using our global networks. But we also work on online child exploitation and business operations integrity, which is rooting out cybercrime involved in our cloud services or supply chain. We have this really unique value add within Microsoft. 
in my estimation, hasn't really been replicated many places, but we are able to work quite easily across other platforms, other tech companies with our government partners. We work quite a bit with DOD, MICA, and we, we work with DHS and, and, uh, and DOJ and the FBI in a lot of ways. Thank you. And I want to ask you, what do you do in the afternoon? No, I'm kidding. Um, it, it does sound like that's um, quite a full plate and uh, really fascinating. So thank you. Hillary, just coming back to you quickly, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, have you seen the questions change among your colleagues in the area and, and boards generally? I, you know, I, I was going to say, having seen cybersecurity from all these different vantage points from government, you know, in various roles where I focused almost exclusively on cybersecurity to now being general counsel and seeing, you know, the, all those issues from sort of a, a, a different vantage point. I would say that, um, you know, cybersecurity generally is the enterprise risk that just still keeps me up at night. And maybe it's because I can see more issues. And I would say that the questions being asked of, by boards are much more sophisticated. Um, I think what you find are boards who take a lot of NACD training and really focus on cybersecurity, or you know, they come from backgrounds as technology officers or board members or CIOs or focus more on information um, security. So you see that, you see the, the sophistication of the boards becoming, I think, a lot greater. You also see, I think, a, more of a recognition, because I would say a lot of boards when I first started out, I think there was a tendency maybe to sort of go, oh, it's not that big a deal. And we put in lots of protections where, you know, we're in the dip. It's all good. And I think now there's a recognition by directors, you know, you could put in all the protections, you know, in this 800-171 and you can do it perfectly with the latest and greatest technology, but you're still going to get attacked. And so you just have to be aware of this. And that's one of the things I have seen change is I think in the beginning, there was more of this tendency to put your head in the sand and go, okay, we've got everything. We're, 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 we're good. And now I think there's more of a recognition that it's not unusual to have as your top enterprise risk cybersecurity. And it's because of all the reasons that my you know, co-panelists have talked about and you yourself, Maureen, I mean, it's it's the, the threats are evolving. They're aggressive. Um, the way they attack us is evolving. The psychology is evolving. The technology itself is evolving. And then the regulations, you know, you look at the, the Warner legislation, I, I mean, they're becoming a lot more intense. So it's a really significant risk, but I think I think if you are transparent and the board recognizes the risk as being one of your top, if not your top risks, and asks the right questions and, and keeps up with the latest and greatest and, and, and addresses the, the issues thoughtfully um, and with education, I think I think that that is a very good risk mitigator in and of itself. You know, I was just going to say just from, uh, you know, a lessons learned in the trenches, just this is a team sport. I mean, it is a team sport. You have to partner across your organization because if you're on an information system, you are part of the team that needs to protect it. I mean, so you've got, there's nobody who's immune from it. And you also have to partner through organizations like this and um, other industry-based organizations about the latest best practices. You've got to share information. And, and then too, and I think we've talked about this generally, but participate um, in, in government in, information sharing programs. I mean, the relationships I've built in government are so sacred to me. And the trust that was built, I think goes a long way. And I just think these information sharing programs are invaluable 
valuable on both sides. And we're all part of the need to protect our country. So it's something that has to be invested in. Right. And I do think that one of the big differences, in addition to all the ones you mentioned, is the one Mika mentioned before, is making it resilience. You're never going to defend against everything. It's kind of more of a, you know, it becomes like a crisis management incident that just because the hurricane's gone through, that's really the beginning of what, what you need to do and think about. And, and particularly, that seems really apt with the issue of ransomware. I want to shift a little bit here. There's a lot of interest in the notion of government service and and the role it's played in all your careers. And do you have any advice for law students who would want to go straight into working in the public sector in a cybersecurity position? So any specific advice, anyone, for getting a government job? We have a couple programs here in the Defense Department that are actually government-wide that would help people come into government service from graduate school. The PMF, the Presidential Management Fellows Program, which people apply to straight out of grad school or law school, is one really good way to get into government, and then you can rotate through. It allows you to specify what kinds of areas you might like to focus on, cyber or something else. And then there's another program called the McCain Fellows, which allows people to come into DOD. I've had now, I have my second McCain fellow in my office now, but they have expressed interest in particular offices and it's a good way to get into government. It can be a little intimidating working through the USA jobs process. So some of these specific programs are helpful for folks to be able to come into government. I mean, I would encourage people to look at that. Great. Thank you. Anyone else have any um, particular advice on on that point? A couple more. So the, the two that Micah mentioned are Fantastic. I know that Department of Justice has an honors fellows program. Obviously, CISA is hiring as well. Uh, Department of Homeland Security has an honors program. You, you apply for those through USA Jobs. Um, but but at, at bottom, just be a really good lawyer. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I started off as a law clerk. Interning at a, in it for a judge is also a great way to start your public interest career uh, while you're in law school or, or finding a, a clerkship. I also think some of the law schools are now having open to all law students and there's some sponsoring and it may be even one of the agencies of a cyber writing competition. So if you want to kind of get a bit of a name, that's another potential thing to to look at. Kim, do you have anything there? Or? One more thing on that, on uh, government hiring. I would just remind everybody that when you think about government cybersecurity jobs, they are likely to require a security clearance. So as you guys are enjoying your time in graduate school and law school, I would just urge you not to do anything that might endanger your ability to get a security clearance. And that's a very good reminder for all of us on, on, on these calls. Kim, I'm going to actually, another question we've gotten has been someone interested in kind of how to get a female mentor in cyber. In other words, you know, what has been the role of mentors in your life? And what do you think if someone's looking for a mentor as a law student, what is your advice on getting a mentor? Good question. I'm not sure I had a formal female mentor. I sort of stumbled on a couple of women that I worked with. The chief of the computer crime and intellectual property section at DOJ was a woman. And so I had some luck in, in, in having that sort of naturally there without seeking out a, for, a formal program. One thought is it seems like quite a few law schools now do have some sort of women in technology group. So there might be an established group that might have some connections because sometimes I went to Georgetown uh, University Law Center and they occasionally reach out as a woman lawyer. They have a women in technology group. So that would be one place to start. I actually started a formal women in cyber group last year 
it's on our website, Alston Women in Cyber. We are just the administrators. It's for women cyber leaders, especially in law, because I hadn't seen, you know, necessarily that group. There's actually someone from Microsoft on our board advisors, as well as across industry sort of board that helps in advise on what topics would be important. But What's important to me about that group is I have a lot of young women attorneys that are also helping to run it, run the LinkedIn chats, come up with ideas um, on events. We have an, a networking event um, talking about women returning to the workforce later this month. And it's an opportunity for women, young women associates. I encourage them to develop their networks through that group. And also law students are welcome to join. So just looking for opportunities like that. And please, it's at alstonwomen.com. You can, you can alstonwomeninsiver.com. You could join it. So I know there's more groups like that sprouting up. And I would encourage you to look at your law school and then just doing some general searches of women in cyber, women in technology, women in cybersecurity. It's kind of how I've been stumbling upon some of these newly formed groups. I have really got to thank you for a wonderful and uplifting conversation. It is great to be able to get to know you all a, a bit better and to see you. And hopefully next time we can actually do something like this in person. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 